Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I am one of the communicators here. So just right off the bat, before I forget, so we got Adam in the back of the room. He's running the slides today, and you may not know this, but when Adam's running the slides, you never know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, in the first service, the only way that I could describe it was a living nightmare. Um, <laughs> Sort of, you know, this was on one thing, that was doing something. At one point, I just had to stop and say, oh, good. I'm going to cry if we can't get this right because no one knows where we are right now. So if you're a person that prays, just pray for the man right now that we can make it through this message. No, I'm kidding. No, it wasn't that bad, actually. Anyway, so over the last couple of weeks, we have been doing this series called The Life of David, and uh, we've been taking a look at this guy named David, and we've been asking the question, who is he? Why did God choose him? How did God use him? What can we learn from his life? You know, all these kinds of things. So if you're not familiar with who David is, David is considered to be the greatest king of Israel. Um, this, he was the king of Israel about 3,000 years ago. And so in week one, we briefly, we, we talked about how God anointed this 15-year-old shepherd boy named David and said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And then in the second week, we talked about David and Goliath, this idea that God had empowered this young man to slay a giant. And it's a, it's a great story. It's in the Sunday School Hall of Fame, as we called it. Last week, Adam did a great job talking about this time in David's life where he had the chance to kill Saul, the current reigning king who wanted to kill David. And why it's so interesting is that David was promised the throne of Israel, and yet he had to wait for years and years and years, and finally he had the chance to kill the king, to take his place, and get what was promised him. But he said, no, no, no. It's not my timing. It's God's timing. And so he chose not to kill Saul. So today, where the story takes place, David has now been king for about 20 years. Let me bring this back a little bit. He's been king for about 20 years. So let me just do the math for you. He was anointed by God at the age of 15. He assumed the throne around the age of 30 or so, okay? Now he's been king for over 20 years. So he's essentially late 40s, early 50s. And we're skipping so much of his story. What you need to know is that throughout these 20 years plus, God continued to do so much in his life, continued to bless him immeasurably. War after war, victory after victory, God used David to grow the boundaries of Israel, to make a change in the world so that people looked at Israel and said, who is your God? But as you saw on the screens, it, it talked about this idea that he was great, but he wasn't perfect. Every week we've kind of alluded to this idea that he was great, but he wasn't perfect. Today we're talking about the time that David messed up in a big, big way. And it's the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, if you've been at church your whole life, there's a chance you've probably heard this. If not, you may not know this story. But what's interesting about this story is that, in my estimation, it's actually perhaps one of the saddest stories in the entire Bible. Um, you know, you're going to hear it today, and it's just, it's, it's disturbing, and it's confusing. And it's not confusing because it's complicated. It's confusing because you're looking at the characters and you're going, well, how did this happen? How did this guy that we've heard so much about land himself in a place like this? So most of Monday, my wife was saying I was overthinking it, but most of Monday I was trying to figure out how am I going to tell this story, particularly to people who don't know this story? 
Because usually we kind of teach our way through it, but this is the kind of story that it's just so good. So I was like, should we read it first and then talk? But here's what I want to do. I want to give you some outlines of, of what you're going to see. So if you don't know this story, you can at least keep this in your mind as to what's going to take place, and it's going to help the story make a little bit more sense for you. You're going to see lust. You're going to see adultery. You're going to see deceit. You're going to see cover-ups, and you're going to see murder. And this whole story of David and Bathsheba, as far as I'm concerned, really, is a cautionary tale about the dangers of temptation. And, you know, when I use a word like tale, maybe you're thinking, well, this is, a, this is a fairy tale. Well, this is not a parable. So a parable is a fictional story created to tell a real truth. This is a real story. These are real people. These are real events. And that's what makes this so much worse. So when we're talking about temptation, we've got to talk about sin. And, and we, we just need a, a baseline definition so we're all kind of on the same page. So James who is the brother of Jesus, talked about sin and temptation in the New Testament. And he said this, Temptation comes from our own desires. It's, it's in here. It's within all of us. And temptation entices us and drags us away. He's saying your temptations are going to drag you away from God, your family, just all the things that are right. It is going to pull you away. Now, these desires eventually give birth to sinful actions. Those thoughts that you're having, those desires, eventually, if you don't push them away, they're gonna, it's going to turn into sinful action, he's saying. And when sin is allowed to grow, to take root in your life, it gives birth to death. So he's saying, here's the progression. It starts off, it's just a thought, just a feeling. And then eventually you go, mm, I'm going to act on that. And then when you do, and you allow that sin to take root in your life, it leads to death. What kind of death? Well, we never really know. You never really know. So as we look at this story today, keep this framework in your mind because you're going to see how smart this guy James is and how this plays out in the life of this great king, this great man of God, David. It says this, and we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's going to be two chapters long. It's way long. We're not going to do the whole thing today, which is we would be here for hours, okay? But I would encourage you to go back and read it. So I'm going to hit some key verses. I'm going to paraphrase at times. But I would encourage you to go back and read it. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite armies to fight the Ammonites. Let me just talk about this spring thing he's talking about and why they normally go out to war. So this part of the world has a climate actually pretty similar to the Northeast. And if you're from the Northeast, which I am, if you're from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, all that kind of stuff, you know that from like December, maybe even November to March, the weather's terrible. You can't go outside. There's no sun. It's cold. You sit inside and you eat and you get fat. And you think about how soon it's going to be summer and it's going to be hot and you're disgusted with yourself. Anyway, that's what's going on here. So at this time in this part of the world, they didn't do war at certain points of the year, but now they're going to battle, right? Additionally, in this time of the year, the crops were growing so the armies could eat while they were out there. So David says, all right, it's go time. He sends them out. Interestingly enough, it says, however, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He stayed behind. What's interesting about this is that David was anointed by God, and part of the special anointing that he got was that he would be a powerful 
warrior. This was sort of his spiritual gift, if you will. And time and time again, like I talked about, he would wage these battles and he would win. Victory after victory after victory. And yet for some reason, he decides to send out the boys and stays home. He's saying, I understand this is my gift set, but I'm not going to go there today. He stays home by himself, isolated from the people he knew, from the things that he's good at, from the things that he's been called to do. See, here's what I understand about this, is that isolation puts you in a perfect position for temptation. When you begin to separate yourself from friends and from family and from work and just kind of stay by yourself, you need to understand that you are in a prime position for Satan to come hold of you. He just loves when people hang out by themselves, separate themselves from the things they used to do. This is why a church community is so important. This is why it's so important that you guys showed up here today because I understand there's brunch, right? I understand the dolphins are on. I don't think they're playing today. I couldn't tell you when they play anyway. But there's things that you guys could be doing, but you're here. And it's important because you're surrounding yourselves with like-minded people who can lift you up, who can encourage you, who can protect you from getting sucked into isolation. So David has isolated himself. He's home. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, must be nice, David got out of bed and he was walking on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So what's interesting is you kind of read the commentaries, what other scholars are talking about, the way that the Bible describes this woman. And, and basically, they're saying she has of just incredible beauty, just untold beauty. She's a smoke show, right? And David is up there, and he's walking to the end, and he's taking a peek at this hot woman naked, okay? Let me ask you a question. You guys are pretty smart people, I think. Do you think this is the first time? Oh, gosh, Adam, here we go. Do you think this is the first time David walked on the roof at that time of day? I mean, really, do you think this is the first time that he walked on that roof that time of day? I don't. Let me tell you why. We already talked about the fact that they were home all winter long. There was no wars. He's just sitting there at home, and I guarantee you one day he walked up there and he saw this woman and goes, ooh, this is nice. And every day after that, he goes, what is it, about 5.30? Let's head up there. <laughs> he knew what he was getting into. And folks, here's the deal. I also believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that perhaps the reason why David chose not to go to war is because he liked that view better than he liked his calling. Amen. Right? I think he liked that view better than he liked that calling. So the question we have to ask is was there anything sinister about walking on this roof? I was running the message with Christina, one of the girls who works here, and she goes, what does sinister mean? Was there anything wrong about it? Should, I mean, was this a weird thing for him to be doing? Was this perverse? Was this illegal? Should he not have been up there? No, it was actually completely fine. Many houses had rooftop patios, just like the hotels in Florida, because you get the breeze up there. You get a nice view. There was nothing inherently or technically wrong with David being up there. But I think that's where it gets interesting. Because I feel like in life, we often get in trouble in the gray areas. Those things that we're doing where we're saying, well, it's not technically wrong. What, I mean, what I'm doing is not really technically wrong. It's not a problem. I mean, I'm just talking to the girl. I'm just, I'm just doing this business transaction. There's nothing technically wrong with what I'm doing. 
So my grandfather was a pastor for about 55 years. And um, he had this saying that he used to describe particular kinds of temptation. And I think it's well suited to this gray area of life temptation. He said that when Satan wants to tempt you in this area of life, he sends out his white-gloved devils. Because Satan's a smart guy. Satan knows that if he throws a temptation out that's so obvious, right? If he were just to come out in his full form, you go, run, I don't want any part of this. Well, what he does in the gray areas of life is he sends out these devils that are wearing the old white gloves, tuxedo, looking good, nice and clean. And he says, really? Is this, did God really say you shouldn't do this? And we're lured in because we've let our guard down and we're hanging out with places we shouldn't be doing. So let me ask you a question. Where's your roof? In your life right now, where is that place who is that person? What is that thing that's not technically wrong, but maybe you're just spending a little bit too much time there? Is it the internet? I mean, are you clicking on web pages that perhaps you shouldn't be? I mean, did it start off with a pop-up and you go, oh, what's this? Well, I didn't Google it. Why don't I just click on it, okay? And you go from there. Is it the gym? Do you find yourself going to the gym at a particular time of day because that one guy with the nice biceps is there and it's just, I'm just looking? I'm just looking, not a problem, okay? I can look at the menu, all right? Is it the office? Do you have kind of like a Pam and Jim thing going on at the office where you're talking with somebody who perhaps you shouldn't really be talking to and you got the tinglys and the next thing you know, you're in trouble? Or is it Facebook? I was thinking this morning, I could do a whole sermon series on Facebook. Social, I mean, it's the greatest thing ever, but man, will it take you down in more ways than one, and you know what I'm talking about. Here's something you may not know when we're talking about all these things. Temptation is not a sin. You may not have known that, but that, that, that first thought, that first little feeling you get, that's just, that's a human reaction. That's, that's not a sin. But what James is saying is that when that sin or that desire turns into action, that's a problem. Now you've got a problem on your hands. And that happened to David. Here we go. He sent someone to find out who she was, that gorgeous woman, Right? and was told, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So here's what's really interesting about this little section here. In very few places in the Old Testament is a woman described as the daughter of. It's either her name or it's the wife of it. And what I think is going on here in this little section, which you could miss real quick if you're not paying attention, I think this messenger has probably been watching David for the last couple of months. I think he knows what David is thinking, and I think what he's saying to David right here and right now is, hey, 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 this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. I just need to make sure that you understand. If you're about to do what I think you're about to do, just, just I want to make sure you have all the facts. David goes, get her. Bring her here. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And later she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. Words you don't want to hear. Well, some people want to hear them. Most people in this situation aren't going, oh, great, perfect. I'm so happy. Just what I wanted to hear. And for the first time in David's life, he panics. This is a guy who battled lions, who battled bears, giants, war after war. Not a problem. But for the first time in this man's life, he panics. 
See, what you have to understand is that David didn't only love God. David loved the law. And we didn't read this part of the scripture, but David talks about the fact that he just had this love for God's law. The Ten Commandments, the 613 laws, or whatever the number is, he loved all those laws. He loved them. And he knew that Deuteronomy 22.22 said this, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. That's an issue. That's a problem, okay? So here's the thing. When we get caught up in the sin, I think we start to cover it up. When we get caught, when we see that we've done something, we, we tend to begin to cover it up. What can I do to make sure that nobody finds out about this, that I can maybe make this go away, maybe will no one ever find out? David has now found himself in this situation for the first time in his life. So he concocts his plan. He goes, all right, here's what I'm going to do. He writes a letter to his general and goes, I need Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, if you've forgotten. Bring him, bring him back to me. I, got, I just got a couple of questions that I need to talk to him about. So he sends Uriah home. And when Uriah arrived, David told him, go down to your house and wash your feet. Here's what's happening here. Wash your feet is a Hebrew slang, Hebrew euphemism for go sleep with your wife. So David is saying, hey, listen, you've been a great guy. You've been a great soldier. You're such a loyal follower of mine. Take the rest of the day off. Go home. Go sleep with your wife. Now, if you're smart, you know exactly what David is doing. Because David wants him to go sleep with his wife so that in two to three months, when she's showing, everybody goes, oh, there's that day that Uriah showed up. Makes sense. Not a problem. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace and did not go down to his house. I took this part of the scripture out, but it said he's going to David. I, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I have too much integrity. My boys are out there in the battlefield. I couldn't live with myself if I went back to my house, slept in my bed, and slept with my wife. No, I'll sleep out in the street. David's in trouble. Plan A didn't work. So David goes, all right, not a problem. Makes sense. Come back tonight, and we'll have dinner. So at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. David's going, I'm going to get this guy good and liquored up, because you know what happens when that happens, right? Not a problem then. He'll let down his inhibitions. He will surely go home. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat with his master's servants. He did not go home. David has met his match. Finally, a guy with integrity. This is not going to happen. Uriah is not going to sleep with this person. So David's nervous because he knows that someone has got to die. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Picture this. This man, Uriah, he's done nothing wrong. He's a great soldier. He's a great follower of David. He is now going back to his commander, holding a letter, the contents of which he has no idea. But if he were to crack that seal and pull out that letter, he would read, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. The commander got the note. He executed the orders. And, the, and Uriah was killed. He was killed. And when Uriah, Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And it ends by saying this. 
But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's the first time those words were uttered ever in David's life. And if you're like me, you hear this story, and I just said to myself, how did this happen to such a great man of God? I mean, this guy who was described as being after God's own heart, this guy who was anointed by God, who'd been blessed by God, who just chapters before was given a covenant by God for the future, how did he find himself in this situation? And if you've been looking at the newspapers this week, you know of other churches in this country where their senior pastors have fallen to sexual temptation. Here's the deal. No one is safe from temptation. Nobody. And what we see in David's life, and what we see in the Scripture time and time again, and what we see in other people's life is this. When you hand over the controls of your life to sin, you never know where it will take you. Do you think when David was walking around on that roof so many weeks ago that he ever, ever conceived that one day he would be murdering a man? That's how sin works. Once it works its way into you, you just never know where it's going to take you. And the truth is, when it comes to sin, there's always more at stake than you think. You know, you're right there with the temptation. It's, I'm going to take the next drink. I'm going to do this with this woman. I'm going to make the quick cash. And you never think about all the extras, all the ramifications that it could have. But there's so much at stake. Your future's at stake. Now, what's interesting about this is you never see how your future's at stake in your own life. It's very hard to see, if not impossible. But you know, because you've seen friends who are about to do something dumb, and you go to them and you go, my man, my friend, if you do this, you just need to understand you're going to lose your wife, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your house, you could get in legal trouble. It's like you're a psychic and you can just see X, Y, and Z, the whole path, what's going to happen if this person falls to this temptation. And yet, when we're in the midst of it, all we can see is that which is in front of us. I just want this. I don't want to worry about that. Others' futures are at stake. When you sin, when you sin, others' futures are at stake. Everyone in your circle of influence has the potential to suffer when you succumb to temptation. And this is something you don't think about, but let me just quickly ask you this. How many of you come from a broken home where one parent did something and the marriage ended and the family split up and your life has been different because of a decision they made. You never know the impact your choices are going to have in the lives of other people. You know who this guy is? Yell it out if you know. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. was considered to be one of the greatest comedians of the last decade. And about maybe a year or so ago, he was one of the first, first guys that got caught up in the Me Too movement. And we learned, as this movement gained strength, that this guy, so many years ago, felt a temptation. And in that moment of sexual temptation, he did something for himself, but impacted the lives of those women forever. And he never knew the impact that he would have in their lives in their families' lives, how relationships with men for them would be changed moving forward. But here's something else he didn't know, how it would impact other people in a broader sense. I have a family member who worked for him. She was an executive on all of his shows. And FX 
and HBO canceled all of his shows. And my relative lost her job. And the camera people lost their jobs. And the makeup people lost their jobs. And the caterers lost their jobs. And the scriptwriters lost their jobs. And all of these families, 10 years later, were impacted by this man's choice to follow a temptation. You never know how far your sin is going to reach into the lives of other people. And you don't know the impact it's going to have on your faith. Here's the deal. Every time, every time you sin, you damage your relationship, your accountability, and your connection with God. And this is true. And you may not realize it, but this is true. Do you know, how, do you, here, do you know why so many people drift away from God? Because many people will say, well, and this is a church, by the way, if it's your first time here, this is a church that specializes in reaching people that have had a bad experience with church, no experience with church, and we've asked Christians to come along for the ride to help us do what we need to do to reach those groups. But in our conversations, I, I, you have no idea how many times I hear people who've said, well, I've got a lot of theological issues with the church. That's why I don't show up. I've got a lot of theological issues with God. That's why I don't show up. But in so, many, in so many circumstances, the reality is that you've got those differences now, but that's not how it started. Because I know how it started. Sometime in your life, you violated your conscience. Sometime in your life, you fell to temptation and you sinned. And you sinned again, and you sinned again. And you felt bad. And you went to God, and you said, God, forgive me, and he forgave you. And then you sinned again. And you sinned again. And eventually, you said to yourself, what? Why am I wasting my time feeling guilty? I, 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 don't need, I don't need to feel guilty. It doesn't even matter anymore. And you walked away. I don't need to feel this guilt from some God. And the next thing you know, now you've got theological differences. But the reality is that you didn't think your way away from God. You behaved your way away from God. And this is the truth. I've seen it happen in front of my own eyes. Because sin breaks contact with God. When you let sin into your life and you let it grow and you let it fester, sin breaks contact with God. Your prayer life is impacted. You're going to be praying and you're going to feel like your prayers are not even getting past the ceiling. Joy is going to be missing in your life. And I'm not saying you're not living the best life, so to speak. You're out there, you're partying, you're doing everything you wanted to do. You're doing you. I'm not saying sorry for anything. But you know deep down there's a joy missing. Because you know deep down, there's just, you're just not right anymore. There's, that joy that I once had with Jesus, that joy that I once had with God, it's just not there anymore. And the saddest thing is that God can't use you. I mean, Jesus looks at you and goes, I, I, I love you. I died for you, but I, I just I can't use you like this. I mean, you, you've got sin running rampant in your life. I can't use you when you are like this. So the question is, is it possible to recover from sin. I mean, that's why we're all here. I mean, is, is, it, is it possible to recover from sin? So John in the New Testament writes this. He says, if we confess our sins, he, meaning God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is true. But there's a couple of steps that have to take place for this to happen. Number, number one, the first step is you have to say yes to Jesus. And, and I've been speaking under the assumption that we all have, but, but at some point in your life, 
You need to get to a place where you say, I believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. And I might not understand it all. The Bible still confuses me. I may not fully understand the whole Jesus thing, but you've got to get to a place, and you can talk to me, you can talk to anybody who's a volunteer, you've got to get to a place where you say, I believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he came to this earth to die on a cross so that God and I would be good. But the issue becomes, for so many of us, we start to begin to, we look at the sins and the wrongdoings in our lives, and we just say to ourselves, well, if I can just be a good person, maybe I can get rid of this guilt. If I can just do enough good works and good things in this earth that God and I are going to be good. But the truth is, the Bible is very clear how God views your good works. He says that he views our good works as filthy rags. And yet so many of us think, well, if I'm just good enough, I can get to heaven. If I'm just good enough, God and I will be good. He's saying no. I sent Jesus because he is the way for you and me to be right. And the reality is this. If there were other ways for you to get good with God, it would have been the cruelest prank of all for him to send his son Jesus to die if there was another way that it could happen. That's step one. Paul, who was another New Testament author, talks about this time between your life before you said yes to Jesus and after you said yes to Jesus. And here's how he kind of describes it. He says this. When sin had power over your life, you were not right with God. Before you said yes to Jesus, you were not right with God. And there's something inside of you that goes, yeah, he's right. Yeah, he's right. What good did you get from the things you are ashamed of now? And you know what he's talking about. Those things that you were loving at the time, but now it's like, ugh, why did I do that? Why did I let that go into my life? Why did I let that continue? Those things bring death. Just like James said, those temptations, those sins, they bring death. But now you are free from the power of sin. You said yes to Jesus. Now you are free from the power of sin. You've become a servant of God. Your life is set apart for God-like living. In the end, the goal, the reason we do it all is life that lasts forever. He's like, let me just recap it. If you don't understand what I'm saying, let me say it one more time in a different way. You get what is coming to you when you sin. You get what's coming to you when you sin. It is death. But God's free gift is life that lasts forever. It's given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Step one, a long step. Step two, repent, right? That's a fancy old school word. It just means this. Get to a place where you recognize failure in your life and you ask for forgiveness. It's just between you and God. Oh, just, I messed up. I shouldn't have done this. God, forgive me. Forgive me. So in the life of David, you look at everything that he did, particularly in this story, and you go, oh, how do you come back from that? Can you come back from that? So David was an author. He wasn't just a king. He was an author. And he wrote much of this book that's called the Book of Psalms. And in Psalm 51... He writes this prayer. And what's interesting is that this prayer happens during this story. He's just slept with Bathsheba. He has now murdered Uriah, and he has crushed. He's just been crushed. He, the way he describes himself is as though his body is literally falling apart. He can't handle the guilt. He can't handle the sin. He knows what he has done. And we get a look into this man's prayer life about how he is now repenting 
to God, asking for forgiveness, hoping he can be forgiven and continue to live a life for God. And he says this, wash me clean from guilt. Purify me from my sin. I know my wrongdoing and my sins always in front of me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Make me hear joy and happiness. Make a clean heart in me, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So how does the story end? I mean, is it possible to come back from what David did? And we know that God is faithful. And we know that God forgives if you ask for it. And David was forgiven. And Bathsheba was forgiven. And what's so important is that they forgave themselves and they went on to live productive lives to glorify God. You see, Jesus died so that you could be forgiven for sins. But so many of us forget to forgive ourselves. And Jesus is saying, I died to set you free. I died so that you can now go live life and be productive and serve me and love others. They were forgiven. Unfortunately, that child that was born of that adulterous affair died. But God blessed them with a second child. They gave birth to Solomon, whose name means beloved by the Lord. And if you don't know this, Solomon was a major character in the Old Testament. Solomon is considered to be the wisest man that ever lived. He wrote a lot of the Old Testament. He built a temple to God. As added grace, as added evidence of God's grace, Bathsheba was chosen to be one of only four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. I think that's just incredible. This woman who got caught up in all of this, the New Testament authors said, this woman is so important. She's so important in the epitome of what it means to be forgiven by God. And she plays such a role in the life of Jesus that we have to add her. It's an amazing story. But what's the practical? The story is just information if you don't know what to do with it. So if it's your first time here at DHC, every week we put this word on the screen, practical. Because we want to make sure that you guys can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the first practical is this. You need to understand that our strengths can become our downfall. When it comes to temptations in life, so many of us say, perhaps you've uttered these words, that's not a problem for me. Alcohol, not an issue for me. Drugs, not going to be a problem for me. Cheating on my wife, never going to be a problem for me. Watch out. I mean, if you've said those words, you just need to understand that you need to be especially careful. Because when we think we've got a strong suit, we begin to let our guards down. Peter, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, said to Jesus himself, I will never deny you. Never do it. Not a problem for me. Jesus goes to him, oh, really? Because you're about to do it three times in the next couple of hours. When you find yourself saying, that's not a problem for me, just make sure that Satan's listening and he can't wait to pounce. Number two, get off the roof. I don't know where that roof is in your life, but you need to understand, if you're doing something that you know is technically not wrong, but you keep using that word technically, be careful. The Bible says flee from sin. If you are in that place right now where you are dangerously close, just walk away. Do yourself a favor, walk away. Do your family a favor and walk away. Do all the people that you don't even know about who are perhaps in your circle of influence a favor and walk away. 
Lastly, I want to just, just put a question in your mind that I want you to think about over the next week or so, and it's this. Do you believe that God can be trusted? I mean, if you've said yes to Jesus, this is even more important that you try to answer this question. Do you believe that God can be trusted? Because I believe that at the core of every temptation, we ask ourselves the question, can God be trusted? Can he be trusted to meet your needs? Meaning this. Here's just an example. Let's say you're a single person and you are just dying, dying to be married. And you're trying to live an upright life. You're trying to do things the right way, but you're just depressed, you're confused, you've been praying to God, God, send me a mate, send me a mate, why won't you send me a mate? And all of a sudden, one day, you're thinking, you know what? Maybe I just need to start sleeping with people. And if I start sleeping with a guy or sleeping with a girl, I could finally land myself someone. I will lower my standards and I'll accomplish this myself. Do you trust God to meet your needs? To wait on his timing? To not take it, you know, by yourself and make this thing happen? And do you believe that God can empower you to say no? When you're on that roof, when you're about to make that poor decision, do you believe that God can empower you to walk away? It's at the crux of every single temptation. Don't let momentary pleasures steal your future and your faith. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I want to thank you for the life of David that great man, Lord, who has done so much in our faith, so much that we can learn from him. Lord, if there are people here today that perhaps don't know you, that haven't said yes to you, I pray that today might be that day. Today might be that day that they say, I don't understand it all, Lord, but there is this emptiness inside of me, this guilt that I can't get rid of, and I've tried to do right things. I've tried and tried and tried. I just can't get rid of it. Let me give you a chance. Lord, I pray today that you would encourage them and strengthen them, that they can say yes to you. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who is just dangerously close to the edge of that roof, I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit that you would convict them. Lord, that you would empower them to say no, that you would allow them to trust you, that you can meet their needs, whatever needs they're trying to fulfill on that roof, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would allow them to know that you can meet those needs in a real and right way. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.